So Paul planted in our minds the, last week the vision for Jerusalem. Um, this week, chapter 1 was really why Jerusalem, what's important about Jerusalem. We're going to continue thinking about that, but we are really going to look as well at how you get this vision off the ground. So we're going to look at the kind of character traits that God's looking for. We're going to look particularly, and some of them are really practical, but that's just me. That's just the way my mind works. And other ones I think are probably more helpful. But we're really going to look at what's needed to go from chapter 1 of this, ver- this burden for the people of Jerusalem and this burden for the city walls of Jerusalem. And we're going to take that and see how that gets off the ground and what kind of people is needed to get this relic built up again, this ruin functioning again. Why is that important? That's a question we need to have in our minds. What drives people to restore a relic? You've seen these people. Um, you can, I, can, I can walk past a ruin and I can think, oh, that must have been a nice building at some point. Or I can watch these TV programs where, where they do up the houses and I can think, oh, that must have been nice at one point. But there's nothing in me anywhere down the line that thinks I want to be involved in restoring that. These are special people. My next door neighbor restores Lambretta scooters. And he's just, he's ferocious with it. He's obsessed with Lambretta scooters. As I'm saying this now, I'm realizing he might be hearing this at some point on the internet. I hope that, that doesn't happen. But he, 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 he gets these, these small boxes delivered to his house and he comes out excitable and he opens up the packages and it's an old rusty bit of bike. And he's enthused and enthralled by it and he takes it back inside his garage and he looks around it and he pulls out some odd tool that you've not heard of and he spends all his time restoring this relic of a motorcycle. And the only time I ever want to be him is when he sets off and drives the blooming thing down the road with his cool parker on and I think, yes, now, now I'm engaged. And as I meet him, it's quite interesting. I often see him on a Sunday afternoon and I see him restoring his relics and I'm worried that he can see on my face this behind my eyes is, I think you're crackers. I think you're crackers. And I'm, what my expression says, this is amazing. Let's talk about this some more. Let's do guy chat over the drive. But behind the eyes is, this is insane. Go inside and watch some TV or something like that. But equally, as I think of his madness in restoring his relic, I wonder what he thinks of me and my relic. I'm off to church at four o'clock. And I think behind his eyes, he's looking at me thinking, why does he make his kids do that? Why has he got all those religious books on the shelves of his house? Why, why, why would you bother with the relic of the church and we share I don't know we hide perhaps the truth that's behind our eyes when Nehemiah find out about the plight of Jerusalem I wonder why would he think about going back there think about where he is he's in the most powerful city in the world he's he's working for the king why would you go back to the ruin of Jerusalem he's in Persia it's it's hundreds of miles away. I can't remember if it's thousands of miles. It's two months' journey away, and it's in ruin. And the people are in disgrace, we read in the chapter, don't we? Why would you go back to fix that when you've got the job of the cupbearer to the king? It's not a job without a bit of risk. I think cupbearers got killed quite a lot, you know. And it, but it still is in a better position than he's going to be living in the ruins of Jerusalem. Why would you go back to Jerusalem? Why in 2016 is the guy at the front telling you the story from the pages of the Bible about the importance of Jerusalem and a man going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why is this a story? Why does the Holy Spirit convict somebody 
to write it down, and it's in the pages of our Bible. Why? Why Jerusalem? Let's park that. That's the question. We'll answer it, but you can park it there. Let's look at the character of the guy that he's got to build this city up. And we'll just read through a few of the, the first couple of verses, if we can. The first probably quality that we can see in Nehemiah is that he was prepared to speak. He was prepared to speak. Listen to this, and I want you to imagine it as far as you can, like it's in a movie. So I realize I'm asking a lot of you there, but then go for it, okay? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th century of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, I love this question, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? People have asked me that before. Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So I want you to try and imagine this scene. This is, I think in the book of Nehemiah, this is one of those fundamental scenes. This is a game-changery scene. Okay, I want you to imagine the king on his throne and the cupbearer bringing him the wine. The cupbearer, we can look because we know, we know the month. He got the news, chapter 1, in the month of Kislev. And now we're in the month of Nisan, which doesn't mean much in Yorkshire 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later, but it means that about four months he's been stewing on this news. That's how long he's had the news for, about four months. And we read in chapter 1 as well that he's not thought about anything else for that four months. This has totally occupied his thoughts and his mind for four months, this news of the remnant in Israel. And he's a bit like a stoic British butler in that he's not been sad in the presence of the king until now. Something in him has managed to, to, to do that tough upper lip thing. And the king's not noticed He's kept on serving him his wine, and he's not noticed. And whatever it is, I don't know whether he didn't have a shave or whether he was just off his game one morning, but suddenly one day the king says, why is your face so sad? And we come to one of those moments. And if it was a movie, in the movie, and I'm pretty sure it's not, there would be an extreme close-up on Nehemiah. There will be an audible gulp. You'd see Adam's apple go down, and you'd see a bead of sweat drip down the side of his face as he wondered what to do because if he answers honestly now and he says my real burden is with the people in Israel then the king might kill him but if he answers honestly now my burden is with the people of Israel and the king might help him this is one of those fundamental moments why does your face look so sad when you are not old do you ever get those questions in your life somebody comes up to you in church and says, what's up? And you're like, if I told you what I was thinking today, you would disown me and never talk to me again. Or your boss says, what's the problem? And you're like, should I tell him what the problem is? Because he's going to sack me if I tell him really what the problem is, really, if I think about him. It's one of those moments when Nehemiah has got to make a judgment call. The most powerful man in the world can fix all his problems. And he's got, we're just going to pause on that. He's got to make a decision. And he does I'm going to stop and just mention this. I think it's really good. He does a quick fire prayer. Do you do that? Quick fire prayers. He just throws a quick prayer up at God as if to say, right, I see that I'm in one of those moments. I see that it's a big deal. What should I do? And he says, I was very much afraid. He was very much afraid, but he answers faithfully. Why should my face not look sad 
when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. I really like that phrase that he uses there. I was very much afraid. That helps me. I am somebody who has a few fear issues, as those of you who know me quite well will know. And I found it reassuring to think, oh, that's not just me then, who's scared of stuff and influenced by stuff. Nehemiah was very much afraid, but what does he do? In his fear, is he faithless or is he faithful? He was very much afraid, but he spoke anyway. And in his fear, I think we get to see more not less of his faithfulness. If he was confident to do it, if he was bullish to do it, I don't think we'd see it as much, but he's terrified. He knows what could happen here, and we get to see very clearly his faith. He was afraid. He shows us by his actions, actually, that he's more scared of God. His fear of God is greater than his fear of the most powerful man in the world. Fear can be a useful tool, I think. It can keep the kids away from the fire, all that kind of thing. But it's not a reliable indicator of God's guidance in our lives. Just because we are afraid of something, just because something looks terrifying, doesn't mean to say that it's not God's will and God's plan for our lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's our pattern often, isn't it, that we come at it the other way. We try our wisdom first, and we do our best in our wisdom, and then when our wisdom fails, we think, right, let's go back to God and see what he's got to say about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's, as a church, be more scared of God than the world. It might not be a part of our life yet, but I think it's interesting that as we see God's people in another empire, they have to use, they have to witness through fear. God's people, under another person's rule, They need to express their faith by fear. In our country, we would say that we're a Christian country. And there are times in our Christian walk and our Christian lives where there is fear. But I think think we're heading more in that direction. I think this is something that's going to come more and more for our kids and our kids' kids. Our country, as it goes more and more secular, for them to witness in public, increasingly, they're going to have to think, well, I'm afraid. I was terrified. But... This is God's will here, so I'm going to need to speak up. It's just flagging that up. Fear, what does it say about us? The next question the king's asks is, what do you want? I guess there are two ways to look at this. On the one hand, this is just a normal story about a guy who brings wine to a king. On the other hand, God has raised up somebody into a position where he can benefit the kingdom of God. We tend to compartmentalize things, don't we? It's kind of a human nature thing. We kind of put things in boxes. So we kind of see our job as our job. We've achieved that. I've worked hard for this. This is my job. This is my career. This is my pathway. And I'm on my way up the ladder in this way. And we have faith. We go to church. We took the kids in at night and say prayers. We do that kind of thing. We compartmentalize. I don't really think God does that. And in this story, he definitely doesn't do it. God uses a guy in his position as the wine bearer, the position that he probably, Nehemiah, thought, I've worked hard to get to this position. I've done my time here. I've got to the top at last. He probably sees himself in it. God uses this person to fulfill his plans. They come to this moment where this guy's profession is the vehicle for God to restore the walls of Jerusalem. I think it's a really good lesson for us as we think about our jobs 
as we compartmentalize to think, is this all me? Have I achieved this? Or has God given me this position? In the story of Nehemiah, I don't know how long it took him to get to the top job of the cupbearer, but all God had in mind was his plans and his thoughts in that circumstance. I wonder if it's possible that your job that you've worked hard at and strived for, this position that you've achieved, is really only for one moment of God's glory somewhere down the line. And the fact that you get to pay your mortgage and have a nice glass of red wine of a Friday evening is really neither here nor there. I don't know. He was mentally prepared. It's funny, isn't it, when we, when we ask our kids, what do you want at Christmas? When I've asked my kids what they want at Christmas, they come back with this first answer. And it's, they're a bit tentative at first, and they don't really throw their weight into the answer. They just say, well, I'd like a tracksuit or a bike. And you can see a little bit of fear and perhaps a little bit of respect for the parent, which I appreciate. In fact, I enforce at times. But then they, they, they see that they've got past this first hurdle, and they, and they go, and an Xbox? And an Xbox with a controller? And you might want to think about getting a good bundle for it as well. And you might want to check our internet because the Xbox needs the internet. And then they go into this big, long list of stuff, don't they? And what you realize is, actually, when you think initially they've not thought about this at all, what you realize is they've not thought about anything else for about two months. This detailed answer that they're able to give reveals the fact that it's all that's been on their mind. And as we come to this next passage, I don't know if you could skip the text on to verse 7, 8 there, we realize that in what's happened with Nehemiah is that this big long list is able to present to the king when he asks him what he wants, reveals that for the last four months since he's not been eating anything and he's been fasting, it's all he's been thinking about is God's people. That's all that's been on his mind. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, verse 5, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, and here comes the list, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct till I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates. This is not just something that's fallen off the top of his head. This is something he's been thinking about for months and months. He has been consumed by God's mission and this burden for the people of Israel. Beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted all my requests. Because Nehemiah spent four months, months, what's a month, consumed by God's burden, by the people's need in Jerusalem, thinking about nothing else, when it came to that crucial moment, that extreme close-up that we've thought about in the movie, he was ready with a prepared answer. What falls out of Nehemiah's mouth, seemingly natural, is a result of months of him being prepared. Do you remember the first time you saw Messi? If you're not into football, this is a football analogy. You can switch off, but you can come back afterwards. The first time you saw Messi playing football, or Maradona, if you're of a, another vintage before, before Messi. That's a nice way to put it. Remember, I remember, I'm old enough to remember seeing Maradona burst onto the scenes and just horrifically just destroy England in a game of football. And everybody watching it drew breath and said, how did this happen? Where did this, how, did, how is the ball stuck to his feet? How is he so small and so strong? And I guess we thought that 
about Messi when we saw him pull the Barcelona shirt and he's just this little kid and he just ran rings around everybody. How is this possible? We thought that. The people back home in Argentina who saw him kicking, I don't know, a golf ball and doing kick-ups with a golf ball and playing football day and night, they didn't think that. There was no surprise there with them. They weren't surprised. When they told Messi that he was too short and he's, something was wrong with his legs and the reaction to that was that he just went out and trained and had operations and was completely consumed by the game. The people that saw that part of his journey weren't surprised when he pulled on the Barcelona strip for that one moment and he was completely prepared. I raise this issue of being prepared because my Christian experience is such that I can definitely remember lots of times when I've come to that moment, a moment like Nehemiah had before the king, where he had this real opportunity to glorify God's kingdom and be really useful to God. I've had moments like that. And what's manifested itself often was my apathy for the kingdom. The honest, the honest answer is I haven't been consumed for four months by worrying about God's people, by my friends at work. That's not been my thought process. I've gone into the moment. I've had the moment where the chat's come around to somebody who's not been well or somebody who's searching, and I've sat there, and I've been governed by fear, and I've been worried about opposition, and I've kept my mouth shut. I think there's some really good lessons we can learn from Nehemiah, who was born out of his total obsession with being in God's will and following God's commands. He was completely prepared for this crucial moment in this story, this game-changing moment. I wonder what consumes us, what occupies our mind all the time. What can't we eat for? What can't we sleep for? And maybe if we are consumed by a worry over God's people, then when the moment comes for us to speak into that situation, maybe then we'll be prepared. Next point, he was rested and ready. I found this quite interesting. You might not, but you might do. This is the next scene in the story. It's a long way for him to travel from Assyria to Jerusalem. Um, if you go across the desert, you can cut three or 400 miles off, and it's about 500 miles, although that's a bit risky. If you go along the trade route where the grass is a bit greener and you're a bit more likely to get some water, it's about 900 miles. Either way, you dress it up. By the time you get to Jerusalem, you've been traveling about two months, and you're exhausted. And there's this lovely little detail hidden there in verse 11 that I think is really helpful. And I don't want to over-egg it. You can over-apply passages in the Bible, but I think it's worth flagging up. It says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, he'd been burdened so that he couldn't sleep. He'd risked his life in front of the king. He's traveled 900 miles, and when he gets to Jerusalem to change the city around. When he gets there, he does nothing. He has three days off. I think it's brilliant start to the story. At the start of God's mission to fix the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah has three days of rest. It's the same pattern in Ezra. If you look, Ezra makes the same journey. This is the book before and a few years before Ezra does the same journey, gets there, he has three days rest too. Now, I wouldn't mention this if this was an isolated instruction for God's people to rest. But we see it as a pattern in the Bible. God starts off with it, doesn't he? Even God rested after seven days. And it continues through. We see that he commands us to rest when he gives us the Ten Commandments. It's not something that we just make up. 
as I observe God's church, there's a lot of busy people out there in the world. People working really hard and we are consumed, aren't we, as a society? We just work our, ourselves to the ground. People haven't even got time to sit down and have a meal together anymore. But the hardest working people I see at all are those people who, who marry a successful career with a commitment to the church. I don't know anybody busier than these people. And I see these people exhausted and worn out. And I guess there's a message coming in Nehemiah that is something like, it's time to get off your bum and put some bricks on the wall and get working. But I think equally, God's word encourages us when we're exhausted as a society to look out for each other and say, sometimes it's time to rest. You can take that and do with that what you will. Maybe, you're, maybe you can think, I have enough rest. I feel like I need to be in the next chapter and pulling my finger out. But maybe you're one of these Christian workers who are working themselves to the bone I want you to think about that. Sometimes we can do too much. I don't know what you're like when you're tired. I don't make good decisions when I'm tired. I'm not very pleasant to be around when I'm tired. What's that Snickers advert say? You're a bit of a drama queen when you're hungry. I'm just a nightmare when I'm tired. Diva, thanks Jude. Bit of a diva when you're hungry. Get some rest. It's part of the Christian journey and it's part of the message of the Bible. Next quality. When he gets to Jerusalem, we find that this guy is rightly motivated, don't we? What motivates you? I think we're coming to a crucial time of the year. For those of us who've made New Year's resolutions, have you made a New Year's resolution? You don't have to put your hand up. I'm not going to embarrass you. Have you stuck to it? Are you, are you always, there's a few like, mm, I've stuck to it. How dare you think that I might not have stuck to it? Yeah, I've stuck to it, all right. But I think from my understanding of talking to the people at the gym, their gym membership is through the roof. And whenever you look at Facebook, there's people saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this run, and making these big commitments to fitness, you know, the things that they're going to do. And then they wake up yesterday morning, I made a bit of a resolution to go out running all the time, and I woke up the other day and it was freezing, and instead of a run, I had a muffin. And not only did I break going for a run every day, I also broke my bit of a resolution to try and eat a bit better in one foul swoop, and my resolve was torn or two. And in the slightly more difficult circumstances of life, my real motivation, but not really been that bothered if I put on a few pounds, if I'm honest, was revealed. We get to see in verse 12 the reason why Nehemiah didn't get, give up at any point and why we can be confident, even at chapter 2, that when we get to chapter 12 or 13 that the job's going to be done. I set out in the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I'd not told anyone what God had put in his heart. The reason that Nehemiah didn't stop, didn't balk at talking to the king, didn't mind traveling the big journey, didn't look at the city of Jerusalem and think this is impossible is because God had placed this in his heart. It didn't disappear when he got there and he saw the ruin and think this is too big a problem for me. God had placed it in his heart. And we find, I think, quite a helpful contrast when we consider Nehemiah and his characteristics, and his motivation. And we see, quite understandably, the remnant, the bunch of people that are left there in Jerusalem and their characteristics. They've had years of ups and downs. They've had years of opposition. And you can quite easily understand when Nehemiah comes and says, right, we're going to rebuild the walls, the people saying, we've done this before, and it didn't work. That's really 
current church language, that, isn't it, that we can really relate to. We've done it before. We've tried to build before. There was opposition before. It's too hard. The, the, the surrounding peoples don't let us get away with it. The king's got his eye on us all the time. We can't get this job done. It's too hard. There's too much opposition. There's this, and I guess what was born out of that resulted in apathy. The people just lived in the relic and lived in the ruin. And yet Nehemiah comes with a fresh vision, contrasted completely. And he can't see the hard task for being focused on the fact that it's God's will. I think it's helpful as we think about our church going forward. A good attitude for us to have. It's so easy, isn't it, for us just to look at how hard it is and how hard it is to get on with people and, and the points of conflict that there can easily become with people and, and how building another building right now just feels impossible. And yet we've got this lovely perspective that Nehemiah has, that he's just so focused on God. He gets there, finds the people, and he just sort of says, let's get building. Let's get on with it. I wonder about us. Nehemiah's heart was bleeding. And in his characteristics, we can see his true motivation, can't we? Caused him not to eat. I wonder with us, what, what would we be willing to not eat for? What would grieve us so much that we couldn't eat? What would grieve us so much that we couldn't sleep? What would grieve us so much that we'd be willing to walk 900 miles to try and fix it? I read an article in The Independent the other day, and it's not, there was no other papers, so I bought The Independent. I'm not saying I'm a paper snob or anything like that. It was the only one there. And it was a really damning verdict on the church. And it was saying something like, and I showed it to one or two people, isn't it great that church attendances are down because it means that we are developing a cleverer society in that we reject religion. And my reaction was, first one was, oh, blah, blah, you know, like old manny kind of, oh, and then I read it again a bit more closely. And I was grieved, but I've not written a reply to the independent. I've not, it's not stirred me up any more than that. What would really grieve us? As we look at God's church, God's people, Nehemiah uses the language God's People are in disgrace as we live in the ruin. And when we think about the broader church, the Church of England, you could perhaps say that occasionally over time, there's elements of disgrace in how our church carries on. Does it grieve us? Are we bothered? Do we just, like me, read the paper and think, that's a bit of a shame. Nehemiah couldn't do anything else. Are we rightly motivated to build? Or have we become apathetic? Finally, his last characteristic that I think is worth plucking out, he was God-focused. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no part, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I made just two really simple observations, and I'll shorten them. 
because we're out of time. There'll always be a rallying cry. There was a rallying cry here for God's people in ruin. There will always be a rallying cry. God will always rise up people until the day that Jesus comes back. There will always be a stirring of the Spirit. If you've made a profession of faith, it was honest, and you accepted before God your sin, no matter how far you go away, I believe the Spirit will stir in you and he will challenge you about what you're doing and where you're going if your confession was genuine and true. God will keep on sending people. God will have representation on earth until Jesus comes back. His church won't be overcome. It will prevail. The tricky thing is, how will we respond when we are challenged? I think that's the story of our lives, isn't it? As we go through our Christian journey, I don't know anybody whose path has been constantly upward like that. Do you? Who's never, who's never reached a point where they've gone backwards or they've strolled along for a certain while. This is the story of our lives, and I think we'll be until the end. It's how do we respond to that nagging voice? How do we respond to our conscience as we live our Christian life? The second point, very simply, is there'll always be opposition. As, as I read through the book of Nehemiah, at every point where there seems to be a slight improvement in circumstances, every point that you see God's work at hand, there is opposition. So every time you read about Nehemiah saying, let's go and do this, immediately the next paragraph says, and so-and-so, whose names I won't be able to pronounce, stepped up and he said, no, we're not going to do that, we're not going to have that now. And as I read that and I realized that, I thought, man, that's the story of the Bible. Right from the very beginning, when we see Adam and Eve, immediately, as soon as God creates a people, there is the accuser, Satan there, as his opposition. And at any point throughout the story, we see that same pattern where trouble comes and problems comes. And it's very helpful, I think, for us to understand that, probably particularly at the journey we're at as a church now. In our Christian lives, the journey we're at in a church, there will always be <clears throat> opposition. Opposition's not a reason that you're doing the wrong thing. Just because there was opposition here, Nehemiah didn't go away and say, yeah, there was opposition, this must have been the wrong thing to do. As we go through our Christian lives as a church and as individuals, there will always be opposition. I really love Nehemiah's response to the opposition, though. When somebody slags me off, oh, I said, come on, I shouldn't say this, it's true. When somebody slags me off, I just, I think, how can I get them back? What can I, that, even if I don't say it, I'm thinking, what's their weakness? What do I go for? How can I slag them off back to be better, than, <laughs> slag them off better than them? But Nehemiah sets us a great example, and me, in that he doesn't retaliate, does he, with personal insults. When they mock him and ridicule him, and they say, what are you doing? He says, the God of heaven will give us success. As he is mocked, he points to heaven, grabs hold of another brick, and starts building. I think that's a really good lesson for us to think about as we go through this next phase. Whatever it is, as the opposition rises up and comes, that we, at all costs, keep our eyes on God and his plans when we face opposition. So why? Why restore a relic? Why Jerusalem? Why have we got this story in the Bible about Jerusalem? Why does Nehemiah's face look so sad? Why is he willing to risk his life to speak to the king about his concerns? Why does he travel all that way to live in a ruin when he could have lived in a palace? Why? Why is it in the Bible? It's because this is God's holy city. This is God's people in God's place. This is the witness to the world of how God carries on. And if it's in a ruin, 
God wants to do something about it. Why bother with the relic of the church? Why bother getting into your car at half three, four o'clock? When some churches have become so irrelevant, nobody wants to go in. And some churches have become so exclusive, nobody dare go in. And some churches have just become insignificant. And some churches are just so occupied with tradition. And church can be quite a hard place to come. And we don't always get along with one another. Why should we keep going with the relic of the church? Why? Why is the next few months? Why should we care passionately enough to want to pray about the next few months and the next stage in the life of Christ Church? It's because it's God's people in God's place under God's rule and reign. And it's the way that the world gets to see God. In other words, it's all that matters. We're a light on a hill, a people to be seen, and a witness to God. So we keep building.